Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself? Or about someone else. Got it. Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Word of the Lord. Amen. Well... I did not expect uh, for this sermon to connect so deeply to the weekend that I just had, but it does. Um, so you may notice my voice it could be a little, um, a little finicky today, which is why I have my trusty coffee up here. Uh, just spent the weekend in Athens and went to my first Georgia game, the first time I've been in Athens in 15 years since I graduated. And coming back from that experience, uh, the Lord met me in, in a unique way that normally these are the kinds of weeks where you like ask somebody else to sub in and preach for you because you're driving in at midnight before you're preaching the next morning, which, you know, could be a bad idea. Or we'll see if it is. But, um, <laughs> but this particular week, it feels like the Lord was very purposeful in what he did um, because as I'll share in, uh, in a, a couple of minutes, my story is very much wrapped up in what happened to me in college. The Lord met me for the first time in college, and I had the opportunity to show my oldest son where I was, the seat that I was sitting in when Jesus met me for the first time at the Wesley Student Foundation on the campus of the University of Georgia. And that experience has sort of fast-forwarded me through all of my, it's like my life flashed before my eyes, um, the past 15 years of the Lord's faithfulness and brought me to the, rea the realization that God is after me and God is after you. And what we just read is a case study in God's pursuing grace, 
in the very same way that we just experienced with this baptism. God is the ultimate pursuer. Because I used to think that I had to get my life right before God would want anything to do with me because I was that ultimate outsider and Jesus welcomes me in. Because why else would he want me? I, I, I brought nothing to the table. I brought nothing to the team. I was running away from him, not towards him. My heart was not soft towards him until he made it soft to him. But he did. And my third year of college, he made a beeline to me. And maybe some of you have that story of a, a particular moment in time where the Lord has made a beeline for you. And I'm not just talking about the first time that you believe. I'm talking about to consistently draw you back to himself, because we are constantly going wayward. We are constantly forgetting that he exists and living like we are God. And yet he, in his gentle, humble, pursuant, courageous grace, continues to pursue in and to woo back. And that's the story that's in front of us today. So how might he today be making a beeline for you is the question in front of us. Or who might he be using you to make a beeline towards so three points for this morning. Uh, the outsider's experience, bringing outsiders in, and then finally sending insiders out. So first, the outsider experience. If you have been tracking with us through this series, or if you just, just ever read the book of Acts, even the first chapter, Acts chapter 1 verse 8 sets this trajectory that the rest of the book of Acts continues to live out and show and tell the story of how it actually happened. And because in Acts 1-8, Jesus says the gospel is going to start here in Jerusalem, and then it's going to go out to Judea, which is kind of the next concentric circle out. Then it's going to go to Samaria, which is kind of the next concentric circle out. And then it's going to the ends of the earth, as far as the east touches the west. That's how far the gospel will go. And this is the first moment where the gospel begins to touch the ends of the earth, as it were. Over the last two chapters, we've seen uh, in the stoning of Stephen, we've seen the gospel go to first the Hellenistic Jews. That's a, a little rung out. Then we saw the gospel go one rung out further, which we jumped over this passage. But if you read in Acts 7, uh, where Simon the magician is kind of the, uh, the figurehead there in Samaria who gets converted. And then so we've now hit Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and here it is. This is the first person who has been converted who is completely an outsider in every way, shape, and form. Because the Lord is pursuing his people, and he uses a whole host, Acts 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, and he uses a whole host of people to do that. And today, sometimes he uses them, and they know what they're doing, and other times he uses them, and they don't so much know what they're doing. And that's kind of what happens uh, here if you... If you read the beginning of the passage again, Acts uh, 8.26, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go to the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So currently, uh, Philip is north of Jerusalem. And this road, so he has to run all the way back south. And then there's like a 60-mile stretch of road that the Lord just says, go there. It, it would be like as if, the Lord came to one of you today and said, I want you to drive I-40 between here and Cookville, and then I'm going to just go. Just go do that. And it would kind of be like, well, that's a strange thing for you to ask me to do, Lord. Oh, and I want you to go um, 
you can't have AC in your car. I'm going to break your AC in your car. Your windows aren't going to work, so they're going to be rolled up all the way, and it's in July. Because the next verse, verse 26, Luke just adds in this little, uh, this little phrase for description. This is a desert place. So the whole thing is just very odd. He's sending Philip out in the middle of the desert for an assignment that he doesn't know what he's going to do yet. And ultimately, who he sends him to is this Ethiopian eunuch. This is not the Ethiopia that we know of today as Ethiopia. This is more so the area of the Sudan in Africa. Um, in the, the Old Testament, this is the Old Testament kingdom of Cush, if you've read any of the Old Testament. And as a, as a eunuch, he would have been, uh, often men were made to be eunuchs to serve royalty because they couldn't have children. And if, if they can't have children, then the aspiration to somehow overthrow and become the king sort of fizzles and goes away because it's, there's no need. I would have no progeny. I would have no people to carry on my kingdom if I were to overturn this thing. And so the term eunuch almost became synonymous with the term treasurer. And so it's hard to tell here if he is physically actually deformed or if there is just a uh, sort of that tre treasurer title that is given to him. I think it probably is more so the former as well. It is true that he is a high-ranking official. It is true that he was, you know, kind of one of the right-hand people to this queen. But it does seem like, especially because of what we'll read that is some of what seems to be motivating his curiosity here, it seems like he knows that there's a couple of rungs between him and God that he wished were not there. Because the Ethiopian kings and queens were considered incarnations of the sun god. And so he had plenty of God in his life already. There was already plenty of, of worship that he could do, but there was something that was not satisfying to him about that. There was something else that was lacking. And it's very possible that being, if you read back in the Old Testament, the kingdom of Cush was around the kingdom of Israel in its heyday. And they had some conflicts. And, but they knew enough that, he, nor, you know, it's possible that this Ethiopian could potentially have heard about this God, Yahweh, to the point that it would draw him to this thousand-mile journey to Jerusalem to worship. Potentially, we're not sure why he went to Jerusalem to worship. It may have been one of the feasts um, and celebrations of the day. But for some reason, this eunuch has heard about Yahweh, and he wants to worship this God. But there are a couple of things working against him. Because there was at least two issues, two reasons that he could not come close to the Lord. The first is he's a Gentile. He's a non-Jew. And he's not only a non-Jew, he's from the like far outer reaches. And so for him to come into Jerusalem, there was an outer court of the temple called the court of the Gentiles. That was as far in as he could go. Outside, that was like the courtyard. And then there were these giant walls with these gates that you could then enter in if you were of the right heritage, if you were of the right ilk. But definitely, he was not of the right heritage. He could not go in any further than this court of the Gentiles. And this big wall divided him physically from the presence of the Lord. Not only that, if you read back in Deuteronomy 25, assuming that this is also a physical deformity, 
that he has. There is a, another explicit barrier that the Lord gives. And it actually, in Deuteronomy 25, says that eunuchs are unclean. They cannot come to me. There is, so not only is he a Gentile, and that barrier's up, he's also a eunuch, and he has these two barriers stacked against him. And so it seems like all of this hunger, this pent-up desire to know the Lord, seems to be because there's so much reason that he shouldn't be. There's so much reason that he shouldn't know the Lord. There's so much reason that he shouldn't be let in. It's easy to identify more so with Philip in this than it is the eunuch because he seems so unique and different. It, it, that seems so otherworldly to anything in, in our experience. But a question to help us kind of get into the mind of the eunuch might be this. What makes you think, if there's a God, because of this, there's no way that he likes me? There's no way that he would want to have anything to do with me. I know he, like, you know, the grace of Jesus, and he tolerates me, I'm sure, but he doesn't, like, smile over my life. He couldn't, because look who I am. Look at what he's done. Or it might be, what makes you think, if, if there is a God, I'm not sure if I like him, because of either something about me or something that has happened in my life. Maybe it's something that you've done, and you hate it, and you beat yourself up about it, and you can't stop thinking about it, and you just wish if that thing was gone, then maybe, maybe God would accept me. Or maybe it's something that's been done to you, like this eunuch. This, this wasn't something that he chose potentially to have done. It's just something that a life circumstance has happened to him that was not his own doing, and it haunts you. It may be a, a desire inside that you just wish you could rip out of yourself, but it just won't go away. Or it may be something that you're doing in secret that you know is wrong, but you kind of don't want to stop. But what are those things that you would say in the silence of your own heart this morning, if the Lord really knew that about me, then he wouldn't want me. If other people knew that about me, they wouldn't want me. And just to say this out loud, because this does fringe on sexuality and gender and some of those things as we talk about the Ethiopian eunuch's experience, experience, let me say this, there is nothing that can keep the Lord from pursuing you, no matter who you are, no matter what's going on inside, no matter what you've done, no matter what you haven't done, no matter what you struggle with in secret or out loud, there is nothing that you can do to run away from the pursuit of the Lord. There's nothing that DQs you from his grace. Please hear that. And that's the kind of welcome. Would we be the kind of a church that could radically welcome people that would be unlike any of us, that could be so different that they would think there's nowhere that could accept me. There's nowhere that could welcome me with open arms. The welcome of the Lord begins to extend an open hand to anyone and everyone. That's the story of the Ethiopian eunuch, and that can be the story of many people around us too. So bringing outsiders in, that's the outsider's experience. We all have this outsider experience that if we're quiet enough in our soul, we think of the reasons why God should have nothing to do with us. But then there's a movement 
of bringing the outsider in. There's a holy discontent that the Lord can birth in us that can be even the, the precursor to some of the greater work that he will do. But he has to create this discontent first. The eunuch was discontent. <laughs> there was something that he was not happy with the way things were going. He knew that there were these barriers between him and the Lord, and he did not want them there. But it seems that he was holding on to this promise. He was holding on to this hope, and this hope was not completely unfounded. He, he reads in Isaiah 53, which is where Philip, as he's you know, d- doing the, the run next to him, um, hopefully the horse wasn't running too fast or Philip would have really had been booking it. Uh, but he, in and around Isaiah 53, where that passage is, is Isaiah 56. I believe we have this up on the screen. This seems to be, I wonder, if this is the promise that this Ethiopian is holding on to, this eunuch is holding on to. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls, speaking of inside the walls, no longer outside, a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. This seems to be a direct promise. I mean, this is speaking to him, to his experience. And I wonder, this, we don't know this for sure, but it sure seems like if he's reading Isaiah 53, he might have flipped over a couple chapters. And the reason he was ruminating on this section of Scripture was because it spoke directly to him. This was his promise, but he didn't know. How would this thing be fulfilled? This is saying a time in the future is coming where this will be true. How do I make that true of myself? How can I know that it's possible for me to not be an outcast anymore, for me to not be an outsider anymore, for me to not be on the outside looking in, hoping that maybe the Lord would receive me? How can an outsider like him and like us be let in? And it created this holy discontent inside of him. Philip, his first question to him is, hey, do you understand what you're reading? And at least in my head, he sort of saltily responds, how can I, guy? Like, maybe if somebody would tell me, I would know, but nobody has told me yet. I don't understand what I'm reading. Will someone please help me? The year prior to becoming a Christian in college was that year for me. It was that year of holy discontent inside of me where I I knew something was not right with me. I knew something was not right with my soul. I, was, I felt, in a sense, the, um, what's called a spiritual depression, as Martin Lloyd-Jones, a famous wealth, famous wealth preacher, um, Welsh preacher, not wealth preacher. That's different. We stay away from those. Um, <laughs> but there was a spiritual depression that began to come over me. And I didn't know what was wrong. I just knew I felt wrong. I felt guilty, but I had no reason to feel guilty because if there's no God, then why do I feel guilty about what I'm doing? I am my own God. I am my own objective reality and truth. And yet there was something nagging inside that I was like, oh, I just don't feel right. And I'd heard about this Christian idea of freedom. And I thought, man, that sounds so amazing. I'd, I'd heard that promise 
like the, the eunuch had heard this promise. I had heard about this reality that there is a freedom that I could live in where I, I wouldn't be so uh, down in the dumps and down on myself and feeling terrible all the time about what I'd done and who I was and the person I was becoming. And I, I had a the who phase. Anybody else have like a classic rock phase in late high school, early college? So I got stuck on, I loved, had the, the two-disc greatest hits of The Who, and I would just listen to that thing on repeat all the time. And there was this song where Roger Daltrey, the lead singer of The Who, just screams, I'm free! And I remember sitting in my truck, and when that song came on, I punched and I turned it off. And I vowed in my head in that moment, I'm not going to listen to this song again until I feel free. I don't feel free right now. But I'm going to figure out what that is. And God used that holy discontent inside of me, that desire to feel free, that longing of my soul that I couldn't exactly put my finger on. He used that and then told me the gospel. And like I said, I just pointed to my eldest son, this is the seat where that happened. This is the moment where Jesus met me. And he, he, in, those moment, in that moment, I heard freedom and I heard grace. And it began to, I had that physical feeling of like warmth, like a warm blanket coming over me. But he had teed me up for that. And he's teeing all of us up, not just for the first time, but every time he continues to pursue. Where is that time? Where are you right now where you're feeling discontent with where things are? Where are you feeling discontent about where you are? Where are you feeling discontent about your life circumstances? It could be that those are the very places where Jesus wants to meet you. Maybe even today. To show up in that moment and in that need and speak grace and love and hope and freedom into it. And that's what Philip does here. That's what Jesus does through Philip. Isaiah 53, he says, yeah, I can, I can tell you what's going on here. And thankfully, he picked an easy passage. There could be way more difficult parts of Isaiah to have to point to Jesus through. This one, thankfully, you can draw a pretty straight line. Because the eunuch is saying, how can I know that I can be a son of God, not cut off anymore? And then Philip says, well, Jesus is the Lamb of God who was slain for the sins of the world. Jesus is the one who lived perfectly, yet justice was denied him. Verse 33, why was justice denied Jesus? This, the only perfect human to ever live, justice was denied him. What was justice? Justice was that he gets a full inheritance. He gets an easy life. He gets full access to his father all the time because he had lived every, in every way perfect before him. But it says, like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. Because though Jesus, the justice of God would be, yes, Jesus, come in. You are the only person. No one else has done what you can do. Come in to my presence. Yet, he was silent during his accusations. He was silent during his crucifixion. Why? Because he was accepting the guilty verdict for you and me. He was accepting the slavery verdict of you and me. He was accepting our orphanhood 
so that we can experience his sonship. The perfect insider, member of the Trinity, inside of the inside, became an outsider, unknown to his father. Jesus cries out, Father, where are you? And he hears nothing. And he does that. And he is silent. And he could call down angels to pull him off of that thing. But instead he waits. Why? Because that is what each of us deserve in our sin, standing on our own before the justice of God. And Jesus said, yes, that is what you deserve. And I will take that so that you can go free. So that you can hear Roger Daltrey scream, freedom! And you can believe it. And you can feel it in here to know that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And from his generation, it goes on to say, second half of verse 33, came many sons and daughters. From the work of Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection came a whole host of sons and daughters from all across the world. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every people group, every struggle inside and outside. Jesus is gathering a people to himself that look as diverse as this world is. That's his end goal. That's his end game. And so the invitation for each of us today, whether it's the first time or the 101st time, is receive the welcome of Jesus for you. Receive his sonship. Receive his daughtership. And recognize that he took the penalty that you deserve so that you can be brought in and welcomed deeply. So he brings outsiders in. And then what we see in Philip and potentially even in the eunuch is he sends insiders out because that's the heart of Jesus. The perfect insider leaves everything and comes from heaven to earth. And now he sends his people out today in the same way. One of my favorite stories uh, to illustrate this is a, a guy named Jack Miller who is a, a pastor, church planter. He died um, uh, a number of years ago, but was heavily influential in the PCA, in our denomination, heavily influential in my life from some of his um, writings and, uh, and tapes. Yes, at that time, they were tapes. They're these little cassette things. They have a reel. You have to put them in a physical thing. You can't put them on a phone. They don't fit inside. Uh, and he, he was massive. He just told these amazing stories of all of the ways that, he, that the Lord used him. And I think it's because he felt like such an outsider himself and so winsomely engaged with the Lord that he just would go to anybody and talk about Jesus to anybody. And he had a habit of picking up hitchhikers. And there was a day where he was picking up a hitchhiker, driving to uh, Washington, D.C., and he picks up a teenager named Bob. And Bob is this, uh, he's kind of this vagrant hitchhiker guy, and he's, you know, strikes up a conversation in the 30 or so minutes they have in the car, tells him he's a pastor, tells him, you know, he loves to tell people about Jesus, probably shares the gospel with him right there in the car, and, you know, little to no avail, there's not much of a response there. Guy gets back out of the car, and he's gone. A few weeks later, Jack is doing an outreach um, in a parking lot where a bunch of bikers have converged. And he just feels drawn into this. It's not something he was planning on doing. He walks into this group of 50 bikers, and he starts preaching 
the gospel to him. And they all get real mad and they start to sort of circle in around him and sort of do that like, you know, pounding their fist thing as he's talking at them. And, and then all of a sudden, it seems like he's about to get jumped. And all of a sudden, this other drunk biker dude stands in front of him and says, wait, 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 I know this guy. This is my friend Jack. He picked me up a couple of weeks ago and told me about Jesus. And then... Jack got to share the gospel with all 50 of those biker dudes. Many came to faith. Bob was one of those. Uh, he would go on to marry one of Jack's daughters. And they would begin a missions agency in Europe, of which he is still a missionary, at least last time I checked. That is the pursuing grace of Jesus as it begins to work inside a life, that it begins to send that person who is the outsider of the outsiders, the drunk biker outside of the bar. He begins to send that guy into Europe to evangelize and mission uh, and create a mission to the people of Spain. Never know. Never know what God will do. Never know who he'll send you to. Never know what he's going to use uh, our church and the people of our church for. But Philip miraculously then gets whisked away and sent to share about the gospel with more people. Uh, that sounds really weird. There's a connection to the prophet Elijah that we don't have time to get into, uh, but that seems to be what's happening there. But how is the Lord pursuing you right now? And how could that very same grace be used in you to so settle you of his sovereignty over your life that it could propel you out with total abandon knowing that this life has been purchased by him. Send me to whoever you want. Here I am. Send me. Would he meet us there in that place, even as we sit and continue to worship? Let's pray. So, Father, we, we recognize very much that we have done nothing to deserve everything that you have done for us in our life. Uh, we have done nothing to merit what you have given us. Uh, and yet your pursuing grace just continues to flow. Uh, and it continues to reach all kinds of people all over the world. Your gospel is still exploding all over the world, especially in some of the hardest to reach, most difficult places. It's exploding in China, exploding in South America, exploding in Russia, exploding in Iran and Iraq and some of these heavily persecuted, difficult places. Would it explode here? Would it explode in our hearts? Would you meet us right where we are, where we feel like outsiders right now, and speak words of peace to us? And would that peace begin to boil something inside of us that says, this is too good to keep to myself? Bring many to know you. Use us to do it. We pray in Christ. Amen.